that very demanding. It's not very popular. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant and his change and his opinion thing we wanted to highlight. We're really looking at this idea of understanding the covenant that God has made with us. And we could really enter into um, a relationship with God that is covenantal. Not just our own personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but your relationship with Jesus Christ is regulated by the covenant that God has made. And so getting to know what that means for you and I makes us like like uh, like Cheryl was saying, a, a serious student of the Bible. There's so much that we have in Jesus Christ. There, there's no field like the field of theology, biblical studies. It's more vast than any field in the whole world. It's more vast than science. It's more vast than the philosophical understanding. Biology. The field of theology. The field of what God has accomplished in Christ so let us be a people that give ourselves completely to examining the scriptures, to understanding the covenant of God, so that your relationship with Christ is well informed. And you're actually walking in a confidence, not because I feel good, not because, you know, we rely so much, but because we know God and we understand the scriptures and we understand what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. Now, I want to also encourage, that's why, that's why we do these Bible studies. We get, Literally, I, I literally have four Bible studies at a time. Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday, and then and I'm, I'm Saturday morning. And the I reason I do that is because I, I just want to like, before I die, I want to apply all that I know. You know, one thing, one of the things that I should know, when I went to seminary, um, and this is kind of my religion, when I went to seminary, So I saw it differently. So I so so part of part of my passion is to diminish that and I can present that that the the great the vastness of redemptive history and all its beauty so that you can really God wants to make known to us his covenant. In Ezekiel 16, 1 through 4, we landed, you know, in this idea that um, God's relationship with us is based on great love. And so, again, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. And so, thus says the Lord God Almighty, the origin and your birth are of the land of Canaan, and your fathers are from there. The mother of your people, and as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cordage that you had, knowing you walked in torment and trembling, you robbed you, rubbed your salt in it, and it was wrapped in sackcloth and ashes. Father, thank you for this precious moment that we can just examine your word and just bring it before you. Just bring it before you. Speak to today. Lord, I know you're around us. I know you're with us. I want to know that which the scriptures say. Lord, you said you speak to the shepherd, that you said in them we have pray that today, Lord, we would just grow in learning and being a great, wonderful work that you have done in redemption. 
all these little acts that we have to give as a redemption of Jesus Christ so as to bring us into covenant love. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would just add just a little bit more to this so that we might be changed by the power of your spirit. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just some quick review. We didn't, last week we didn't, we didn't meet because of the weather, so we're going to meet again. What kind of relationship does the covenant establish between God and his people? These are just some review questions. The kind of relationship that the covenant that God establishes with us is established at the very beginning with Adam. So, so we can, um, the, the, the word covenant does not appear in, in when God created Adam, but we know from Hosea 6, 7 that Adam was in covenant with God. But that like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. So, so the Lord is using uh, Adam as a point of reference and, uh, and, and showing um, the people of Israel, just like Adam, they, they broke the covenant, they broke the covenant. But Adam, there was this covenant, and he says, they have dealt faithlessly with me. And this, like, this word faithlessly is only a word that fits in the context of a marriage relationship. Now, friends are not faithless in this world. Only a husband and a wife can be faithless to each other. It is a marital, uh, marital term. It is something that can happen in the context of a loving union between two people. And so the Lord is here revealing the kind of relationship that God, the covenant establishes, is an exclusive love relationship with God. And so that's, that's part, of the, part of the training of sanctification. Part of the training is not just understanding what Christ has accomplished, which is fantastic, but the reason why he's accomplished it is so that we might enter into, with increasing intensity, a love relationship, an exclusive love relationship with God. So that's where the hard work of like, okay, <laughs> because, you know, that, you know it, it, it's not about stopping smoking, curse words. You know, I mean, there's, there's that, you know, it's the discipline of falling greatly in love with the, the one who loves us, the one who he put this covenant together for an exclusive love relationship with the Lord. Isaiah 54, verse 5, for your maker is your husband. I mean, it says it very plainly. The Lord of hosts is his name. So we see this call to love, and, and that's going to be the battle for you and for me. That's going to be the battle. The battle lines are drawn on the lines of love, of affection, what my allegiance, heart allegiance is most for. That's where the battle lines are drawn. And so God has to do this wonderful work of sanctification, and every work of sanctification is to take love deeper into our being so that Christ is all in all in us, and that we love him, right? So love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind. That's the goal of redemption, and that will be accomplished through Christ, amen? So, so then we get to this idea that we lose that sometimes. We lose this exclusive love, and I suspect that many have lost that tenderness, that love, so we go through the motions, right? We distance ourselves. And so began to consider a little bit, how does the Lord begin to restore back that, you know, we lose it. We, we tend to, the Bible says, and one of the prophets said, my people are bent on backsliding. In other words, they're bent on leaving me. They're bent on, we have an impulse by nature, by the fall, to fall, just kind of, Make God not that important in our lives. Uh, after he's done so much, you know, even after he's done so much, even after he's done so much, all of us are prone to wander, right? We're prone to wander. The God I love. That's prone to wander. And so we all have this, we have this thing in us, you know, and praise God, you know, praise God that his mercies are so true that we have to deal with ourselves. And, um, but how, do, but does, how does the Lord begin to restore us back? that relationship with him. And, and, um, and I just began to felt, sense the Lord just really encouraged me in there. One of the things that the Lord begins to do to encourage us back, to encourage Israel back to a love relationship with him, is not demand. God doesn't come to say, I demand you to love me. <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't act like that. God knows that. He, you know, he's not looking for you to just outwardly just give some feign idea that you love him. No, he wants love from the heart. So what does he do? Uh, one of the things that he does is that he, rem he reminds you what he's done for you. That's beautiful. But even before he reminds you what he's done for you, he reminds you of where you came. 
<laughs> because what he's done for us has no meaning if we don't understand what he's doing. <laughs> right? So look at Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, the first thing that the Lord does is remind the people where they came from. See? Son of man, verse 2. Make known to Jerusalem an abomination and say, Thus says the Lord, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. He's reminding his people, Look, my people, I love you. I've done so many wonderful things for you, but let me remind you where I got, where you came from. You came from the land of the Canaanites. That's sexually immoral, perverse people. Idolatrous people. That's where you come from, by the way, buddy. I just want to remind you that. You did not have this wonderful heritage, this wonderful golden heritage. No. It came out of a sewer. <laughs> my, my heritage came out of a sewer. You know, the land of the Canaanites. And the Lord is just reminding his, his people, look, your birth and your, from the land, of, your father was an Amorite, and your mother is a Hittite. She's a pagan worshiper. Right? We're not going to go back through that again. That's not all the Lord reminds them. He reminds them, the Lord reminds his people that their cord was not cut. He says in verse 4, and as for your birth, on the day you were born, you little buddy, your cord was not cut. In other words, you remain connected organically, spiritually, to that perverse heritage. You remain connected. It wasn't cut off. All the, all the impurities, all the defilements, all the wickedness of the Amorites, that became yours organically. That became yours by nature. Right? The Bible says that we're by nature. We are children of wrath by nature. That's where the Lord, right? That's where you and I, that's our beginning. All of us have the same beginning. Our father was an Amorite, our mother is a Hittite, and my umbilical cord was not cut, spiritually speaking. We were, all, we were all in that same state. And then thirdly, the Lord reminds them, you know, you were not washed with water. And as for your birth, not only was your, your cord was not cut, but nor were you washed with water to cleanse you. In other words, you were unclean. You, 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 there, was nothing, um, there was nothing clean. You were unclean. And for the Israel person, for the Jewish person, that was a big deal, to be clean or unclean, right? In the, in the Old Testament, if you were unclean, you were cut off from God, right? Psalm 24, verses 3 and 5, Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands. So if you were unclean, and, and, and they, so the, the Jews, they, they knew exactly who was unclean. You were cut off from God. And not only were you cut off from God, you were cut off from people. You had no community. When you were unclean, there was no community, there was no real fellowship. Leviticus 7.21, and if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether human uncleanness or an unclean beast or any unclean detestable creature, and then eat some flesh from the sacrifice of the Lord, peace offerings, that person shall be cut off from his people. So this uncleanness was a terrible condition, spiritual condition. And the Lord is telling Israel, you were unclean when I found you. When we came into this world, we too were filthy and unclean. You know, there, there, there's, there was a couple of aspects we talked about last time. Uh, there was a, a passive aspect to our uncleanness, right? He's on the day we were born. He says, he says, on the day you were born, you were already unclean. You, you were not made unclean. Israel was not made unclean by what they did. They were literally born in uncleanness, right? And there's also an active aspect to the, our uncleanness. It's not just that we inherited moral and spiritual, but as a result of our bad inheritance, we have active moral hostility. Begins actually in the womb. You know, look at Psalm 58, verse 3. Psalm 58, for the wicked are estranged from the womb. From the womb we go astray, right? We, and that word estranged, it means hostility. The wicked are hostile from the womb. Can you believe that? Now, you and I, like I said last time, you like look at, look at the baby in the womb, and we're like, what? What a pin? What a cute little chap, guy. But as far as the Lord is concerned, he's conceived in iniquity. L look at uh, Psalm 51, 5. Psalm 51, 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. You know, the idea that, 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 that all we are lost without Christ. We are, we are, there's nothing redeemable of man apart from Jesus Christ. Nothing. And the Lord is reminding Israel, hey, by the way, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten why do you, what have I done that you don't love me no more? You don't, you're not really interested in my, what I'm doing. You're not, you're not really, what is it? Let me remind you where I found you. And that, that hostility from the womb, it, 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 it actually, 
And let's just bring clarity to our uncleanness. That uncleanness really reveals itself in our speech. But look at First Chronicles 3, verse 3. The wicked are estranged from the rules. They go astray speaking forth lies. Speak all kinds of things that don't really um, are unclean, right? When, when we were without Christ, we were arrogant with our speech. We did whatever we wanted, right? And Jesus says in Matthew 15, 11, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. You know, so, so the idea that this un- uncleanness, you know, Romans 3, look what the Bible has to say about our speech, our sin. When we think about our sin, it's so easy to think about what I have done. But the Bible is more concerned with what I have said. The Bible is much more concerned with, with, with the way I use my mouth than the way I do use my body. The Bible says about the way I use my body, but, my body, but the priority is really how I speak. Romans 3, 9, what then are we, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And the Lord is reminding Israel, this is where I found you. you. When I found you, your throat was an open grave. When I found you, all you did is deceive. When I found you, the venom of asps was under your lips. We, have we forgotten? Have you forgotten the way, in the condition the Lord found you? May we not forget. Amen? May we not forget. May we remember. May we be filled with praise, right? Let's not take for granted what God has done for us. It's easy to take for granted what God has done for us. It's, we've moved on from that time. So it's easy since we've moved on. Who cares? Let's, let's, just, let's just look forward, right? But, but the Bible does not allow us to do that. We, we must remember what God has brought us for so that we maintain every day a, a gratefulness to God. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Because otherwise, you're gonna, that becomes old. And guess what? You're going to have to fi- start to look for something you're grateful for. I'm like... Look at, just look at what he, taught, what he saved you from. Amen? You know, and, and, and so we have a tendency, all, all of us have a tendency to just forget. And then we wonder why am I not, why am I not full of um, praise. And then we, we looked at the, the story of Isaiah, which we're going to look at a little more today. I, let's go to Isaiah, Isaiah 6, 1 through 5. It re- re- this illustration really reinforces the uncleanness of our lips. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered himself. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I said, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so we see again, Isaiah has a vision of God that really brings out again into more and more clarity, I felt, the Lord put my heart to understand the nature of how we were, how the Lord found us, this uncleanness of lips. Isaiah uses the same word that is used in the book of, in the law of Moses, in Leviticus 5, 2, if anyone touches an unclean thing. Same word, same word again. I, Isaiah is really, um, uh, Isaiah's feeling this something. He, he's, he's feeling anxious. He's feeling unclean before God. Woe is me, for I am lost. He says, I am lost. It, it, woe expresses a, a, a state of intense desire. It's distress, a cry of utter despair. And the word lost is not really a good translation. Let's go back to Isaiah. I, I'm a man of unclean. I dwell in the midst, right? For I am lost, right? That idea, that idea of lost is not a really good translation. It's the idea of I, I, I'm, I'm perishing. I'm destroyed. I'm destroyed. This idea of really perishing. I perished. And the, and the and thing that got me was that the reason that uh, for Isaiah's anguish was not how he treated people, but how he felt. He said, I'm a man of unclean something else, my lips. He, something aggravated in his mind 
something related to the way Jesus preached. And I kindly said, what was it that you witnessed? What was it that you witnessed? Isaiah chapter 9. I'm a man of unclean lips. What was it that he saw? What was, what was his experience that led him to focus more on his lips, the way he preached, rather than his eyes, what he sees, his ears, what he hears, his feet, what, what, what places you're going to, his hands, what he's doing, seeing if he's doing or doing that, right? There are a lot of ways that we can, <laughs> a lot of ways that we can go off, right? We can see things that we shouldn't see. We can hear things that we shouldn't hear. We can use our feet to, to go to places that we don't go. But, but the thing that aggravated in Isaiah's mind was none of that. It was the sin. It was the way he spoke. And as I remember years ago studying and, and asking that question, how did he do, how did he go from seeing the glory of the Lord from I'm a man of unclean lips to coming to him with his sin? It was the sin. The other thing that wasn't lips, but it was talking about. <laughs> and then I began to study my sin. Above him. <laughs> oh, yeah. Above him, verse 2. Above him stood the cherubim. Suddenly, the cherubim take center stage. I, I don't know about you, but um, if I'm seeing the Lord, I don't care who's flying around me. <laughs> I'm like, get out of my way. I mean, they distra- you're distracting my view. You know? <laughs> Hey, seraphim, a little to the left. <laughs> right? But above him, the cherubim came somehow and intentionally stayed. The, the seraphim, actually, the word actually is stay. That's what the word stay means. So it picked up on the prominence of the beautifulness and the quality of the cherubim. And these are creatures that have been identified wings like this, these cherubim, but they're like, they're these creatures, they're not human, and they, they, but they're, they must be utterly majestic, and, but they have these wings, and one covers the wings, one covers the feet, and then the other two, they fly, and, and somehow I, Isaiah says that these caught his attention, these, these are exquisite, these are sacred, he is truly the one holy triggers for me a plan of unclean lips. I thought it was sin. I thought it was a place God had put me. I deserve it. I thought it was a place of sin. Um, whatever. I don't praise God that way. That's, a, that's praising God on a whole different level. Amen? It, 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 it's amazing. When you first get saved, I remember when I first got saved, I came into contact with the uncleanness of my own lips because I was like, I, I had a hard time praising God. I just had a hard time. I just hit a wall. I just didn't feel comfortable. I was so self-conscious. I was just, I didn't know what to say. And it was somebody, I'm going to forget, being at school with my started praising God and he was blind and he started praising God and I just, I just didn't like it. I came, I came into contact with something that I knew was unclean. I, I believe Isaiah Isaiah saw something much greater than I can ever experience. He saw perfect praise of creatures that were not contaminated by sin. Creatures that were in the presence of God. What does that, what does speech look like in the presence of God among creatures that are absolutely perfect? I, I think to me that's, that's an, un, I, I just want to know, what does that look like? Because I think so much of our speech is so filtered, so guarded, so kept, right? But when we get to heaven, none of that's going to be there. Amen? There's going to be a freedom of expression. Amen? I think Isaiah caught a glimpse of that freedom. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And it thundered. It thundered, literally thundered. The whole earth is full of his glory. Right? They're shouting his praise. Isaiah thought, Forget it. I'm a man of unclean lips. 
day she shook, the house was filled with smoke. God's saying, I'm pleased with you. You know, and um, I don't know about you, but I see that and I, I, I feel my own pain in church. This absolute abandon to praise God. Amen? Today I want to look at something else that the Lord put in my heart about this and embrace it. Last week we, we established as this conviction that the uncleanness of his lips is triggered by this praise. That triggers the praise. Constant praise. He saw what praise in heaven looks like. And he compared it to his little little thing, perhaps in Jerusalem, he said, like, oh, but like, we're kind of lame compared to this. Maybe selfish, but it was not just lame, but it could sense that there was a sinful thing in it. Pride, arrogance, right? We want to do things our way rather than God's way. And yeah, he was he was compelled by the praises of this of these seraphs. But that was one area and something that the Lord put in my heart to just um, just to see and strengthen us a little bit more so that we can we can create a false position. And this position is also triggered not only by the intensity, by the perfection of this contrast between the seraphim and his position, but he observed something. I want us to look at first just a little bit more. He, obe- he observed something else, which I think cements this conviction, okay? Well, actually, really reinforces the cement. Okay, let's read um, verse 3. Let's read verse 3. One called another. All in all worship is today. <laughs> that's, that's not bad. <laughs> One called another. That's, that's very significant. Isaiah observed not just what they were doing, but the particular way that the seraphim magnified God. The way they did it was that they called one Okay? In other words, they were not just individually praising God. They were having a collective worship service. Why would they call one to another? That could bring us glory. I mean, I think about it. Like, hey, Bob, we'll talk after that. <laughs> I mean, I mean let's, just, let's just focus. <laughs> right? Right? This, this, isn't that what we all think? Like, Bob, this is not the moment. <laughs> um, no, but this is radical. This is kind of a whole new reality of what it means to be in the fullness of the capacity of God. This is how you can have peace that's going on here. There's something I think that it's hard for us to visualize this. I think the scriptures gives us a handle of, of what is going on because there's this manifested glory of the king. He's on his throne. And you would think, hey, everything else is a distraction, right? No. That's what was said. There were these seraphim, and they begin to call one to another. They spoke to each other the praises of God. They spoke. Their conversation was called to us. In, in the midst of, they're not, the glory of God is what's fueling that conversation. The glory of God was what's really um, just enabling these seraphim that, and they feel compelled to call to one another. 
got to do this The seraphim praised God. But this praise is actually not directed at God. It was for God to direct his eyes. It's beautiful. <laughs> this is, you know, it, it just, you know, we, we think that the, they just had to, they just, right, magnifying God. And yes, they are. But, but let's not lose the picture. They are calling one to another. There's something between them that is is involved in the moment of the glory of the king. Amen? I think that changes for me, and for you, hopefully, it changes the complexion of God's experience of the kingdom. Because I don't know about God is blessing, when God is pleased, you know, <laughs> you know, we're like, Lord, yeah, and that's wonderful. Uh, amen. But when God the revelation of the manifested holiness of God did not create in the seraphim a personal of his glory in his presence are always communicated. It's always relational. It's always personal. God's presence does not distract from community. God's presence right, confirms, flourishes, makes community climax of Their encounter with the holiness of God provoked a conversational moment between them that compelled them towards each other. Isn't that beautiful? It's so beautiful. You see that too? <laughs> God reveals himself and it compels them towards each other. So rather than, right, um, the manifested glory of God's presence, rather than diminishing or limiting the relationship between the seraphim and God, they provide a radical It's interesting that the phrase, they call to one another, seems to suggest that there was a beautiful rhythm right <laughs> every holy 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 and maybe the other one said the fullness of the glory right there must have been some beautiful harm it wasn't chaotic you know when God's presence comes it's like it's not like chaotic Bob, me first. Let me try. No, there's this beautiful harmony. Amen? The manifest presence of God always has a wonderful effect 
wonderful example of bringing into the glorious harmony of God's creation. All creation requires a purpose and a reason for being in relationship to the manifest glory of God. So when God is manifested, that's when you can look at life in its in its essence. That's what it was supposed to be. Amen? Not when you look, when the God's glory is not manifested, it's like things are disordered. But where God is manifested, there you can t- take a lot of notes because everything that you see there is coming out of life. It's coming out of the whole, of, of the climax of creation. Look at 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. We exist. And one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So our very existence finds its climax in the glory of God. It is the glory of God in Christ that brings creation into the fullness of that purpose. Right? Uh, right? That's, why, that's why Christ is so important. Not just to save your soul from hell. No. Christ is important because he is your life. He is the essence of what true life is all about. And only in Christ will you find your life climax to its full potential. Amen? Only in Christ. It's not just that he saves us from hell and he has a place for us to walk in the streets of God. No, I mean, we, we reduce it to these simple things. Like, Lord, have mercy. It's because your whole life is a, is a complete disaster apart from Christ. But when Christ comes in, he puts all things back into order. And so that you're, 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 you become, in a real sense, for the first time, a human being. Apart from Christ, there, we have nothing. We, we're lost. We're destroyed. Like the psalmist said, we're like the beasts that perish. But when Christ comes in, it's a whole different order. Things are back the way they're supposed to be. You're supp- you speak. You walk. You eat. Everything that you do is, is now beginning to be aligned with this wonderful humanity that God has created in Jesus Christ. Amen? I love it. There's a, there's a fullness of life. That's what John tries to explain in John 1.4. In him was life, and the life was the life of men. It's Christ's life. Amen? And so what we're seeing in Isaiah 6 is a climax of life between these seraphims that grip Isaiah and said, wait a minute, this is crazy. They're talking to each other. They're praising God in their conversation. Their conversation is one massive glory to God. One of the glorious effects of the manifested presence of Christ is to bring all these things together. Look at Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Sum up all things in him, right? God, right, there's, there's something that when God's presence comes, he's going to unite all things in Jesus Christ. Brings all things together, centered on the glory of Christ. You know, and you can see that in these, in these, um, in these cherubims, they're not distracted with other topics. Well, I know you want to talk about the holiness of God, but um, I want to talk about, you know, eternity. <laughs> so you could praise God with that. No, you don't, you don't hear that division. Separate. No, you do your thing. I, I, I got feelings too. <laughs> no, they're united. And wrapped up in the glory of God in Jesus Christ. That's what brings unity. I mean, we can't make unity happen. Forget about that. Unity will only come as we behold Jesus Christ. Amen? As we behold him. Oh, it's amazing how unity starts to flow. It's ama- we, can't, we can't legislate unity. You can't do it. But if God manifests himself in Jesus Christ, it's amazing how all things are united because of the we all have, we all are, you know, you're not going to have a separate opinion. We're all going to say, oh, yeah, he's beautiful. Oh, yes, he is. Yes, he is. <laughs> you know, it's just beautiful to like, to reach out. That's why praise, that's why we long for the presence of God, because he brings these things into, into, into real beautiful unity. And we don't have to like try to work it out. It's about, it's about Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Now, now, just as a, for the record, for some of you that don't know, right, let's go to Isaiah chapter 6-1, right? Isaiah 6-1, because you guys can see it, right? So Isaiah 6-1, verse 3, that in the day, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. 
sitting on the throne. You did have more than you could handle. You were victorious. You were victorious. Do we say that because of, yes, that makes us better? No, because the Bible tells us that. The Bible tells us in John, go to John 12, John 12, 21. This is interesting to know that, that, that this is Jesus. This is actually Isaiah 53. In, in John 12, 41, he says, Isaiah said these things because, what? He saw his glory over the temple. Jesus is the temple. This is how he is manifested. His glory. It's the manifest presence of Jesus Christ. And, and so the seraphim were glorifying Jesus Christ. Right? They were glorifying Jesus Christ. So there's just something of the presence of Christ that has this wonderful effect that I want to talk about. Probably not going to finish it today, unfortunately. But I want to, I want to, I want, I'm going, I, I want, I'm giving you a little precursor. We're going to talk about conversational exaltation. You know, there's a, the, the, this manifest presence of God in Jesus Christ has this wonderful effect of centering everything on magnifying the Lord. Look at Psalm 34. Verses 1 and 3. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Right? This is all very much David declaring, my soul lets it, makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. And so you, you hear this. You hear this, but because David is experiencing a moment with God, he's just been delivered. David is just exalting in the Lord. He's magnifying God. He's praising God continually in his mouth, right? There's a clearly, if he's praising the Lord in his mouth, there has been a work of cleanness in his mouth, right? He's praising God. I praise continually be in my mouth. But something happens to David, and he begins to say this. And this is something that I think, um, that is in creation, is in all of us by virtue of our redemption in Christ. And he begins to cry out. And you can see that the manifested presence of God in, in his life that has delivered him has caused him to praise God. And it has brought, it has something has risen in his heart, a desire for something else. And notice what he says in verse 3. He says, oh, magnify the Lord with me. You hear that? You hear the cry? That when God reveals his presence, you don't want to be alone. You want others by your side. This is something I've felt for this. I've felt for the last four months. Where I've been going through this magnificent thing with God. And I don't know how long this will last. How long? I don't want to walk this out. I want to see Christ together with you. I really do. And I know we live all separate lives, but, but I'm telling you, there's a cry. I understand that. God has been doing such a work in my life the last four months. Since I had cancer, and it's just amazing. I love it because I, I, I talked to Peter earlier. <laughs> I talked to a friend at the Home Depot the other day, and I'm just telling him, and, I'm, and he's just like listening. <laughs> I have to tell you, this is incredible what I'm going through. I'm walking with God like I've never been walking. He's been so tender to me. You know, everywhere I turn, he's just like, saying something, he's revealing something. I'm just like, Lord, this is beautiful. I can tell you one day that, that he showed me last week about how much he loves me. How it's, how, how it's that way on uh, a whole different level. But it's just, I'm just learning, just learning to explore, just experience God in a whole new way. But you know what? I long for him to be with me at that point. I long for him. So I get it. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name. How? There's, there's just something when God begins to reveal in your heart, you want to. My desire to be at earth in peace and Sabbath has skyrocketed. I can't wait. My desire, and I've always wanted to be there, but I'm telling you, this is like 2 p.m. I'm like, I can't wait. God is doing something. Like, there's something he's been doing, and it's just drawing me to him, but I want to be with others. 
And that's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way it's supposed to be. And we need each other. Delight in Jesus Christ. Rejoice in Jesus Christ. There's something that completes it. And, and the seraphim stopped laughing. He had, they had company. <laughs> and they just delighted in God together. And they called out to one another. <laughs> That's beautiful. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. David experienced that. He, his experience did not terminate in just some beautiful Christmas story. It was something that belonged to Jesus Christ. And so his heart yearned for the Christmas magnanimity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Amen? This is real, folks. You can dismiss what I say. Okay, whatever. <laughs> oh, please, God. going to do it by his revelation and his personal presence. And that's why my job is not to present Jesus Christ. That's it. <laughs> right? That's why my, I said, Lord, help me to just lay it out there because if by the grace of God I'm able to present Christ through that in the manifestation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, that he unites all things together. That's him. Through his revealed power. He reveals the throne, the throne to each other. There's, there's something about the revelation of Jesus Christ that brings us closer. Amen? Because we all, we all long for true love. We long for the fulfillment of all that Christ is. Amen? I'm going to stop right here. We'll pick up next week. One of the signs that we are truly beholding Christ in his glory is that we, we, we feel the presence of God in this place. Before we talk to him, we come with behold Christ, then as you behold Christ, let me behold Christ. Look at Daniel chapter 2. Don't think But that has to be natural. You can't make it up and just say, okay, at 2 o'clock I'm going to fast. <laughs> you can't do that. You know, you, can't, you just can't. I wish we could do it. I wish it was that easy. But it's not easy. It has to flow out of real life. Okay? So there's a call to know Christ, to behold Christ. The church is supposed to know Christ. It's supposed to be Christ, right? Okay. We're living it. Okay. Here's the thing. Why is Christ really, truly so pervasive in our lives? Here's the truth. Okay, we just talked again about being glad about what we have. believe that God wants us, and you know, we for many weeks have been saying how God is so good and how he takes care of us, but it is for brothers and yourselves and brethren in tribulation. No, unity. <laughs> right? Uh, and we talked about how this
Maybe that'd be a place to go. So, so, so as you believe that, you know, one of the signs that we're clearly beholding the glory of Jesus Christ is in our Father, thank you, Lord, for the overwhelming that you think of us for those who have you just as living water, for those who just want to manage their their living experience, maybe won't they won't manage much of what you've said. Maybe there are others here who have